Physician employment is a great integration strategy, but legal and compliance risks need to be managed. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host and presenter for today. Today, we're going to be talking about physician employment. And physician employment is a large topic for healthcare compliance because most physicians today, especially primary care, are employed by either hospital systems or other types of uh, delivery networks. Before I begin with the Stark Law bona fide employment relationships exception, I want to start with the anti-kickback statute. The safe harbor under the anti-kickback statute basically means that the physician needs to be a W-2 employee, a W-2 employee as defined by the Internal Revenue Service. As long as the services are being rendered are for W-2 physician employment, then such compensation will fit within that safe harbor. Now, the only caveat that I always emphasize with clients is that if someone could allege that you are paying above fair market value, then compensation, especially if there's different forms of compensation components, the heightened compensation above fair market value could be deemed to be an inappropriate kickback under the anti-kickback statute, even though such compensation is put into the physician employee's W-2 employment. But there has been a few cases under the Employment Safe Harbor under the anti-kickback statute, and the basic issue there was whether or not the physician compensation was indeed W-2 compensation under the IRS regulations. And so it it has a very broad uh, basis. And contrast that a little bit with the bona fide employment relationship exception under Stark. And before I dive into it, let me just say what this presentation is not. This presentation is not focusing on the group practice definition, and also physicians who are W-2 employees could likewise fit within the group practice definition and also the in-office ancillary services exception, and that's a different exception. So here I'm only talking about W-2 employment when we're trying to use the bona fide employment relationship exception. This is not for 1099 independent contractors, and this is not for K-1 owners of a physician practice. The components of the bona fide employment relationship exception under the Stark Law are basically as follows. That the employment must be for identifiable services, 
The amount of the compensation must be consistent with fair market value, and it cannot take into account the volume or value of referrals that the W-2 employed physician is making to either the employer or an entity affiliated with the employer. So again, we're getting back to this. It cannot take into account the volume or value of referral standards. And I'll probably dedicate one whole episode on the volume and value indicators. Now, under the employment exception, if you're going to provide any type of productivity compensation, I'll talk somewhat about productivity compensation arrangements, but then under a productivity compensation, the productivity compensation must be based on personally performed services. That is an emphasis with respect to productivity compensation under the employment exception. There has been several recent cases in settlements where the compensation paid to W-2 employed physicians was an issue. And those cases are the Toomey case, uh, the Halifax Health case, Citizens Medical Center, the North Broward case, and also Wheeling Hospital. Those are some of just the recent ones that were settled or were litigated, especially the Toomey case that was actually litigated. And as part of those settlements, the physicians in question were W-2 employees in part. And so just because you're a W-2 employee doesn't mean that the compensation arrangement passes scrutiny. So there, there are other issues, and especially uh, fair market value and commercial reasonableness are issues. And as I said at the very beginning, uh, if you're looking at physician integration outside of a joint venture, physician employment is a very good tool for physician integrated integration. So if you take a look at the spectrum of integration, employment is at the upper end of the integration spectrum. It's because the employer can control the hours, the resources that the employed physicians are going to use, the location where the physician is going to work, what type of equipment, personnel, and space. So the employer dictates what type of services are going to be rendered, where they're going to be rendered, and also the employer negotiates the third-party contracts for the services of the employed physician. The two critical issues under the employment exception are fair market value and commercial reasonableness. And I would ask you to listen to the fair market value episode where I go into great details regarding fair market value, but fair market value is still a key issue under physician employment. Also, commercial reasonableness is also an issue, and such things are under commercial reasonableness standards. Is the position, the employed position, actually needed? You look at the benefits for the service area. Are the services of this employed physician needed for the service area? You look at the structure of the compensation components, and I'll talk a little bit more about structure. Uh, if you're going to be taking a loss on the employed physician arrangement, again, I'm going to emphasize just because you're taking a loss does not mean that the arrangement is not commercially reasonable. Stated alternatively, you can still meet a commercial reasonableness standard even if you are taking a loss on the direct physician employment. So, But you need to take a look at that to, to determine whether or not there are justifiable reasons for those losses. And also, you could through various employment, invest in the service area, or if you're trying to invest in expansion of a service area, or even 
projecting future either departures or retirements of physicians that you can invest in a particular service area and through employment of physicians fit the need of the the service area with those additional employments. So typically, if you meet the fair market value standards, so there's a justifiable basis for fair market value, either using business judgment, subjective factors, alignment of productivity with compensation, as long as you meet a fair market value standard or or, not, or and the compensation arrangement is commercially reasonable, then the compensation uh, should be defensible under the employment exception. But don't make it too complicated. A lot of times I have uh, clients who send to me a very detailed compensation plan that has various mechanisms within that plan. And I emphasize that although a complicated methodology for compensation could be defensible, the real question from a compliance operational perspective is whether or not there are sufficient resources to manage the compensation arrangement to adequately document the terms and conditions of that compensation plan. So again, just don't make it too complicated. If reading it as a compliance officer or a lawyer, you're confused about the compensation plan or the various components, then that is one indicator that the compensation arrangement may be too complicated in order to operationalize. But the more important issue, and this is highlighted by some of those cases that I referenced at the beginning, is the structure of the compensation. So you can get it right on the fair market value and commercial reasonableness side, but if the structure of the compensation methodology is inappropriate, then the compensation arrangement could be problematic. So what do I mean by structure? Well, a lot of this has to deal with ancillary services that the the employed physician is going to be ordering or monitoring of the contribution margin or the downstream revenue that's generated from those employed physicians. And so if any part of the compensation under the employment exception is based upon or takes into account that downstream revenue that's tied to ancillary services, then the structure of the compensation could be problematic under the employment exception of the Stark Law. So if you create, by way of example, a bonus pool that is tied to ancillary services, so let's say that you have a hospital service line, let's call it orthopedics, and you want to set up a bonus program that 20% of the margin of the orthopedic service line goes into a bonus pool, and the bonus pool is divided amongst your employed physicians because that bonus pool is tied to and developed through the ancillary services, then the bonus pool, the creation of the bonus pool, could be structurally in violation because it is taking into account the volume or value of those downstream referrals. You also could have a higher compensation based upon the ancillary. So let's say that it's not a bonus pool that's tied directly to the margin of the service line, but if you would, by way of example, employ one physician, say physician A, you know, $50 per work RVU because physician A refers more business into the hospital, but physician B then refers less ancillaries into the hospital. 
And because physician B refers less, then you're only going to pay physician B $35 per work RVU as opposed to physician A at $50 work R- per work RVU, then you are taking into account the volume or value of the ancillary services. So whenever there's a, what I would call a correlation between the compensation and the amount of referrals, and even if you're taking into consideration the amount that you're going to pay the physician, a correlation between the volume of the downstream revenue, if you take that into consideration when you're establishing the physician's compensation, then that could be problematic. There's also areas, and this is where compliance really becomes key, is if there is evidence that the physician is upcoding or providing medically unnecessary services or not sufficiently documenting their services, so you couldn't support the level of work RVUs that are being generated, then that would have a corresponding higher compensation if the physician was on a productivity compensation model. So once you put a physician on a productivity model, then you need to manage that productivity to ensure that that productivity is defensible. And if it's not defensible, let's say you have a 20% error rate, meaning that you're accounting for 20% higher work RVUs than the work RVUs that are actually being documented or worked, then the physician is being compensated 20% higher. So that could be a structural problem, and this is where the operations and compliance are, are key. Also, if you're not appropriately accounting for the production, so you want to make sure that if you have a productivity compensation model that you're appropriately accounting for it. And also, as I indicated, if you have a productivity compensation arrangement, you want to make sure that that compensation is tied to personally performed services. Then the last section, and this is a large section I want to talk about, is the various types of compensation components. And so a lot of times uh, clients or physicians would say, well, I just want to look at one compensation component in isolation. Let's call it their call compensation and just determine whether or not call compensation is fair market value. Well, typically when you're looking at a relationship with a employer like a hospital and a physician, you want to take a look at total cash compensation. So you want to analyze compensation from all sources. So I'm going to talk a little bit about just compensation structures and some of the issues that you need to be aware of with with respect to those structures. But always keep in mind, no matter whatever you're going to be compensating the physician, the various components, I almost call it like we're hanging ornaments on a Christmas tree. Every time you hang an ornament on a Christmas tree, it's still just one big Christmas tree. Uh, The fact that you're putting various compensation buckets or components into the overall compensation arrangement from a fair market value, you still need to look at total cash compensation. So various methodologies are first fixed compensation. So I'm going to pay a physician an annual fixed compensation or a monthly fixed compensation or an hourly compensation. So it's fixed regardless of their productivity. Uh, next one is you can have production. As I indicated before, if it's going to be a productivity compensation, either through a bonus program or 100% production, 
then you want to make sure it's tied only to personally performed services. And as I indicated in the fair market value episode, when you look at the benchmark data, the benchmark data for productivity is looking at personally performed, not services performed by ancillary providers. So in productivity, you'll look at work RVUs, which is the most popular. You can also look at collections, charges, patient encounters. So those are just different ways that you can look at a physician's productivity. You also, and this is a very common method, you have a fixed compensation, let's say that you're going to establish compensation at the 25th percentile. But if a physician produces above a certain threshold, like work RVUs at the 25th percentile, then the physician will receive productivity compensation over that base compensation. I call that a base compensation with a productivity threshold. So that's another way. And what's very popular is quality, quality components. And usually I see quality components somewhere up to 20% of a physician's overall compensation. And there's various components that you can look at. But as you're establishing quality programs, when you're looking at the total cash compensation from a fair market value perspective, you want to look at the probability of accomplishing each of the quality components. So you can have a very large and aggressive compensation quality component. And let's say that if the physician hits 100% of all of the compensation components, that physician's compensation is going to be above the 90th percentile by 200%. We can all agree that that's probably or may not be fair market value, but then you have to go down and look at the indicators, the quality indicators, to determine of the probability of accomplishing those quality indicators. And so if, the, if it's kind of a softball approach and the physician is most likely going to achieve 100%, then obviously from a, from a fair market value perspective, you have to look at the achievement of 100%, or if it's only likely that the physician will achieve 25% of those quality components, then you can factor in the 25%. Now, could you be wrong? Yes, but you need to have some reasonable reliance or methodology of why you believe the percentage that you're basing those quality components on uh, are accurate, an accurate projection. Then value-based, there are a lot of compensation components that are value-based. Now, don't be confused. We also have these value-based activities and value-based enterprises, which are new exceptions under the Stark Law and also new safe harbors under the anti-kickback statute. Some employers call them value-based, but they may not truly meet the value-based compensation components. I'll have an episode on value-based arrangement, but value-based does not need to meet the fair market value indicators. You have administrative services like a review of medical records. Uh, you could also have medical staff positions or medical directorships, and each of those could have an hourly rate or a percentage of an FTE, like a 0.2 FTE that is dedicated to administrative services. A certain percentage could be dedicated to research, and you can actually assign an hourly rate either based upon other benchmark data for research or even looking at clinical benchmark data for the compensation paid for research. A lot of academic medical centers will also have a certain portion of compensation tied to academic rank, and there are actual services that physicians should be rendering for their academic rank 
position, and that could be a percentage of the overall compensation. And each of these, it may not be the same amount of compensation. So let's say, for example, that a physician's employed and we're paying the physician $200 per hour, but we believe for the academic rank services, those services are worth $300 per hour. That's still okay as long as you're looking at each of these components and analyzing the components from a fair market value perspective. You have call compensation, and that's whether or not you're going to pay for the first hour of call or disproportionate amount of call. And usually I see if there's greater than one out of every three days, then employers are paying the physicians for a disproportionate amount of call. You can have also have supervision. If a physician is supervising non-physician practitioners or CRNAs or techs, you can pay them for the act of supervision. It's not taking full credit for the services being rendered, but it's the act of supervision. They can do marketing. Uh, you can also pay for recruitment. Now, you may be able to put those recruitment dollars into the recruitment bucket and not the employment bucket. You can also have retention dollars, but those retention dollars will have to be part of the total cash compensation. And if you have any type of deferred compensation program that has an enhanced retirement uh, program or package, then some of those retirement dollars will also have to be factored into the total cash compensation. So with that, I'm going to turn to the Captain Integrity Punch Points for our employment exception Stark Law discussion. So Captain Integrity Punch Point number one, that there are there's more compliance and regulatory flexibility with the physician employment as compared with some of the other exceptions under the Stark Law. Captain Integrity Punch Point number two is that compensation must focus on personally performed services and not take into account the volume or value of ancillary services, otherwise known as the contribution margin or downstream revenue. And Captain Integrity punch point number three is focus on total cash compensation, although that you can and should focus on each component of the compensation, but it's really the total cash compensation that is the most most important. So the three Captain Integrity punch points for today is there are more compliance and regulatory flexibility with the physician employment exception, that the compensation, if it's going to be productivity-based, must be based upon personally performed services, and Captain Integrity punch point number three is focus on total cash compensation. Until next time, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.